0: And the USOPC in no way warrants that content of featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show.
1: When that hits you against a solid surface like the bottom of the boards, you know, it's literally like a car collision with no car. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. It's going to be close.
2: Oh! You can't win. You can't win. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. But that is an
1: Olympic
2: champion. Ready. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever. I am your host, Jill Jaris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello, how are you? I am well rested and ready to go. Are you? I am. I got to say, I'm feeling a little jet lagged from all of the <laughs> PyeongChang activity and action. Oh, man.
3: I'm still I know the, tired. The games are over, but there's still a lot of action going on. You know, yeah, we've been right. watching all the videos of the returning home and right. catching up on a few things that we missed along the way. And but... I can do it on my time now, not
1: Pyeongchang (laughs) time, which is a lot easier.
2: I know what you mean. But really, Pyeongchang isn't over, over because we've got Paralympics coming up. Paralympics start on March 9, and they run through the 18th. So we are going to spend a few episodes talking about the different sports and what you'll watch watching the Paralympics. and. We, we know that NBC's got a lot more coverage this year, so hopefully you'll get a chance to tune in. And they're really exciting to watch. I remember watching some of them in Rio and just being – it's fascinating, you know, as an able-bodied person to watch how the, the different athlete classes are formed for Paralympic sports and and just seeing all of the competition, which is always amazing and inspiring.
3: Right. I have not watched much of the Paralympics – Um, So this is going to be really new for me, Mm -hmm. which will be fun because I, everyone will get to see how confused I am as to (laughs) what's happening and, and, but I'm glad actually that my first Paralympics is a winter because that's much smaller than the summer.
2: Right. Right. There's so I can tackle this a little easier. it, It does seem more manageable. It's only about nine days long and there are only six sports in Paralympics. There's Alpine skiing biathlon, cross-country skiing, para ice hockey, or what they call sled hockey, or in or they also call it sledge hockey, I believe if you're in Great Britain or using British English. And then oh, there's- Oh, the
3: bobsleigh versus yes, bobsled thing again. Yes,
2: exactly. And then there's snowboard and wheelchair curling. Today we are going to look at sled hockey and we have with us Taylor Lipsett. Taylor is a three-time Paralympic medalist in sled hockey. And he played forward for the bronze medal team in Torino and the two-time gold medal winners at Vancouver and Sochi. And this year, he's going to be sitting in the analyst's seat for the Pyeongchang Winter Paralympics as part of NBC's coverage. So a few weeks ago, Allison and I sat down to chat with him, and we learned a lot about sled hockey. Take a listen. All right, so sled hockey is athletes are on sleds, which are, describe what the sled looks like for me.
1: Yeah, so the the easiest way to describe it is it's basically on a U-shaped metal frame, kind of like a dolly Mm -hmm. uh, type frame. And then each player is in a custom-made bucket that they sit in. And underneath the bucket is two skate blades that we literally take off of ice hockey skates and mount them onto a custom-made bracket. And, you know, that's that's really, you know, the biggest difference between stand-up hockey and, and sled hockey. It's the way we skate. Do the now are those blades flexible? Do they move like from side to side? Or no, nope, they're in a fixed position. Okay. Um they they can be as far apart or as close together as you want. Usually you'll see forward players have them a little closer together so they have more agility, okay. and sometimes defensive players will have them a little bit further apart just for more stability, you know, as they're trying to knock players off the puck and that sort of thing.
2: Okay, cuz one thing I did wonder when I was watching was you know, you can body check in sled hockey. So I was wondering if like, are the sleds different lengths or you know, how, how is the balance for each different athlete? Cause every athlete's got a different different situation going on. They've got either a couple legs or one leg or no legs. Is the balance different for them in the sled?
1: Most, yeah, most definitely. So to adjust for that, you can move the blades forwards or backwards. Okay. So that changes the center of balance essentially. But, yeah, depending on the player's situation, you know, a double amputee sled is obviously going to be much shorter than okay. uh, a player with two legs. And, uh, you know, some some guys are super tall, so they've got extra long sleds, and there's some guys that have both legs. And just the way mm-hmm. that they sit, like Brad Bowden from Canada, the way mm-hmm. that he sits in his sled, he's got a much shorter sled than most players that do have two legs. So okay. it's really just depending on the player and – Uh, what they kind of fine-tune as, you know, their preference.
2: Okay, interesting. And then one of the rules is you cannot ram somebody, which is called teeing, so that's straight on, but you can, like, body check them
1: to the side. side. Yep, so you can do shoulder-to-shoulder from the side, uh, shoulder-to-shoulder as you're going opposite directions, uh, you know, as long as they have the puck. But, yeah, you can't run into a player, you know, perpendicularly creating that T letter you know, as you hit them. That's the only additional rule that we have that stand-up hockey doesn't have.
2: Okay. How much does it hurt to get body checked?
3: Uh,
1: It's not pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so so it's actually funny because we tell a lot of people, you know, in stand-up hockey, when players get checked against the boards, the glass is made to give a little bit, so Mm -hmm. it moves to absorb some of that contact. Ah. Well, the bottom boards are not made to give, And so when a player is up against the boards and an opposing player is coming in full speed and checks you, um, you know, some of the top skaters in the world are skating close to, you know, 25, 30 miles an hour. And so when that hits you against a solid surface, like the bottom of the boards, you know, it's literally like a car collision with no car. Oh, Oh, um, man, it's definitely full contact and uh, it can it can be painful if you get caught right for sure. OK, the other the
2: other thing I wondered about contact and hurt wise is the sticks, because you have two sticks that how how long is the actual stick part of the stick? So
1: it can it can be custom. They can't okay. be any longer than 100 centimeters, okay. if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, so that's the longest that they can be, but they mm-hmm. can be, you know, anywhere in between there. Uh, there are rules on the curvature of the blade end of the mm-hmm. stick, the shooting end. And also rules on how angled the picks can be on the butt end of the stick, which the picks is what we use to dig into the ice to propel ourselves. So there are rules around, you know, the stick. But yeah, the main one that you're alluding to here is that you can't use that uh, butt end with the picks to stab an opposing player.
2: Right. But I imagine because there is that penalty, it has happened.
1: It has happened and it does happen. And players are very smart. And making it happen undetectably. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, players get creative, uh, but, you know, that's just kind of part of it. So you got to make sure you're protected and that sort of thing. But, yeah, it definitely happens.
2: Yeah, and I wondered because the refs are uh, skating upright. So I was watching uh, an officiating video, as I'm prone to do. So <laughs> they they were saying, okay, you have to kind of, like, position yourselves differently than you would for a standard hockey game because of the the fact that you have to like look in and look around and have different angles on the play right how much can you get away with with a ref not being able to see you
1: oh you can definitely get away with a lot especially because there's only two um so you know in nhl Mm -hmm. hockey or stand-up hockey there's you know two referees and two linesmen. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's four people on the ice all watching, whereas in sled hockey, it's just two. Um, And so there's a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on uh, that uh, definitely goes undetected.
2: Interesting. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it happens. (laughs) (laughs) I saw that, and I was like, huh? I bet they get away with a lot of stuff in there. And I bet that's yeah. part of strategy. I mean, not strategy, strategy, but just like heads up gameplay. What can you, what can you get away with? Oh, yeah. with yeah, for with sure. Having that in, awareness.
1: Right in front of the net, you know, in the corners when there's three or four guys all battling for a puck, there's definitely, you know, things that go on in there to either, you know, give yourself a little advantage or uh, maybe antagonize the opposing player a little bit, to maybe take a penalty or something like that. So, different teams have different strategies different players are known for doing certain things Uh, so it's just part of the game and you learn you know to be aware and who you're playing against
2: so like you said the sticks are used to propel you down the ice and they're also used as a hockey puck or you have to maneuver the puck with them as well right so how are i mean you've been doing this for years and years. So it's second nature to you. But when do you remember when you first started out learning how to handle the sticks to like flip them up and down and and be able to move quickly and then flip it over to get the puck?
1: Yeah, it's definitely, you know, really complex. And you don't actually have to flip the stick. So you actually just slide your hand up or down, you know, whether you're passing or shooting or skating. Um, So you yeah, you just release your grip a little bit to slide your hand up or down, you know, as you're skating but it's definitely one of the hardest parts of the sport and you know i I try to tell people that personally from my experiences i think it's you know the one of the most dynamic sports you know especially paralympic sports that there are because there's so much going on you know with all the equipment like you just said you have to pass shoot and skate all with you know a stick that you have in your hand using both hands all while someone is trying to take your head off on ice, (laughs) on blades that are really close together and very unstable. So, you know, just all the different components of it, when you put it all together, it's just a super dynamic and complex sport. And it's not easy to do, that's for sure. You know, anyone that has played sled hockey for a long time or uh, is, is really good at it knows that it takes a lot of work and you know time to kind of get the hang of everything.
2: Right, because when I was doing some research on you, that was one of the things you really worked on even at home was stick handling because it's something you can do at home. Like, what did you do or how how long did you practice a day or did you – what What kind of goals did you set for yourself in, in training to train yourself up?
1: Yeah, one of my first coaches early on gave me a little wooden ball that you could – I think he said he bought him at Home Depot or something like that. It was just a, a little wooden ball. And he said, you know, you can use this wherever you are, anywhere in the world, and always stick handle and always practice, you know, using your hands back and forth, your left hand, your right hand. Do different shapes with the with the ball on your stick, you know, make a circle, make a triangle, make a square, just all using your stick to put the ball in these various different patterns and stuff on the floor to develop your hands. And, you know, like you said, that's something that I could work on all the time, whether I was at home or on the ice, um, you know. Ice is sometimes a luxury and you don't have a lot of it, so you have to make use with what you have and, uh, again, focus on, you know, kind of your strengths and, you know, my hands and my and my shot were always two of the things that I like to focus on the most because I was never the fastest skater and I was definitely not ever the most physical. So kind of two areas of, the, of my game that I chose to spend most of my time focusing on and you know, early on, I was, you know, easily spending an hour or two a day, you know, between the off ice stuff and, and training in the gym and things like that. What kind of gym training did you do? Just your normal, you know, weight training all okay. around um, functional fitness. Uh, you know, I've done everything from just having a personal trainer to doing CrossFit, which I really liked because I felt like it really mimicked, um, a game because, Mm -hmm. you know, CrossFit is all about high intensity for, you know, a certain period of time or short intervals. So in my mind, I equated that to a really hard shift or playing, you know, a period. Most CrossFit workouts never went longer than, you know, 15, 20 minutes, which Mm -hmm. is perfect for simulating a period of hockey. So, you know, just training for that quick, sudden uh, burst of energy during a, a short shift. And then, you know, as well as training for, 15 to 20 minutes of work and then having a rest was perfect for, uh, kind of training for hockey. And I've, I felt like my best shape that I ever played in was doing a lot of functional fitness like CrossFit, uh, promotes and that sort of thing.
2: What, uh, when did you know that you were a national team level?
1: Um, well, I was lucky enough to have a few guys in Dallas that were on the 2002 Paralympic team. hmm And so I started playing right after after they had gotten back from Salt Lake City, uh, and where where they won a gold medal. So there was kind of a push in Dallas for sled hockey at that point. And you know, after playing for a a year or so, they kind of told me that hey, you've got something here. Uh, If you really work on it and commit to it, you know, there's another level that you can you know take your game to if you really want to. And you know, that's kind of when I started getting you know more aware of the national team and the Paralympics and that sort of thing. And Um, you know, I just kept progressing and one thing led to another and, uh, you know, you just kind of slowly start making your way up and uh, ultimately was called up from the junior national team to the men's team in January 2004 and uh, never looked back. Wow. Wow.
3: What else about the sport
2: that we haven't talked about when, especially when people watch it on TV, what should, what should they look for?
1: I don't think there's necessarily anything that they should look for. It's, Mm -hmm what they're going to see. They're going to see how fast the game is. They're going to see how physical the game is. They're going to see how technical the players are and their skill, you know, handling the puck with both hands, shooting the puck with both hands, you know, making incredible moves, you know, back and forth, skating, um, you know, incredible passes behind their back, uh, even some shots behind their backs. I don't know if you saw, there's a video of Adam Dixon, a, a Canadian defender, I believe it was in a club hockey game. Um, It might have been an international game, but he was taking a shootout attempt. And as he was going in, he kind of cut to the right and shot it top shelf behind his back with his right hand. And uh, that's probably one of the top three sled hockey shots that I've ever seen. But, you know, just the the technical skill that the players at at that level have is just unbelievable. And most people that haven't seen it before that will be seeing it for the first time will Mm – Pretty much just be in awe, you know, when they when they see it at the Paralympic level because of how fast and physical the game is.
2: Did you notice a difference when you went from the junior national to the national team in speed?
1: Oh, yeah, without a doubt. You know, coming from Dallas and even, you know, on that junior national program, I was kind of one of the faster players, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that I was playing around against. Uh, And then when I got to the the national men's team, the Paralympic team, I was definitely one of the slower, (laughs) slower players. And I I probably wouldn't say that I was ever in the top five on the team ever when it came to speed, you know, no matter how hard I worked or Mm -hmm. anything like that, you know, speed is just something that some players have and some players don't. So (laughs) I uh, spent more of my time, you know, again, kind of working on my hands and my shot and Luckily, those things paid off for me.
2: So when, in like tryouts or in practices and things, what, what sort of, what how do they test speed? Do they just put you, you know, go up and down the ice or?
1: So during tryouts the format at least for the US program is literally just 3 scrimmages you know they take everyone that is registered and you know the sled hockey community is pretty small so mm-hmm. you know who guys are so they try to make it pretty fair but you you get you know split up into four teams play two games and from those two games they pick the top players from every team and reseed them uh, into you know the two top teams and then you play one more game and that's it you know so oh, wow. you really you really have to display your speed your skill your ice awareness your hockey sense everything in game time situations right off the bat there's no you know who can sprint the fastest from blue line to blue line there's okay. no who can who can do you know turns the fastest no hardest shot you know competition it's all okay. game situation type scenarios and if you can't play in a game, then, you know, they pretty much don't want you there. You know, they expect you to perform, you know, in a game when you're playing Canada and, uh, you know, Billy Bridges is trying to knock you off the puck. Not who can skate fastest from, you know, one end to okay. the other with no pressure, you know. Gotcha.
2: How, how has the game changed in the years since like, oh, you were in three Paralympics. So right. how, how has the game changed over that time?
1: Uh, I would say a few different ways uh, the game has changed over the last you know decade and a half, really. Mm-hmm. the Number one is the equipment. Um, you know, when back when I first started, guys, you know, very few players were skating in custom made sleds. Um, you know, maybe you know the the frames were made to their dimensions, but mm-hmm. you know they they didn't have buckets that were molded to their bodies. They didn't have the the high quality materials that are being used today. The sticks that most players used were made out of wood still, you know, and now today you've got Easton and Warrior, uh, which are stand-up hockey stick manufacturers, both making sled hockey stick, um, sled hockey sticks uh, made of the same material that the the stand-up hockey sticks are made of. You've got buckets that are being made from prosthesis across the, the world that are custom made to every single player's every, you know, bump and turn and you know whatever it might be to make it you know fit as tight and as as good as possible because the tighter the bucket is then the more reactive the sled is to that player you know shifting his weight one way or the other um and you know the the materials that they're using for um the the frames now are um you know aerospace aluminum materials that are super light but super you know sturdy and that sort of thing so uh yeah the the equipment has just taken off leaps and bounds, which, you know, has allowed the game to get faster, to get more mm-hmm. physical because the equipment can withstand it. And, you know, just the, the players' uh, skill levels have grown because, you know, when I, when I first started, that first generation of players in the United States, they all kind of started playing uh, the game when they were in their, you know, 30s, 40s. Some of them were, were younger, in their 20s, but, you know, the majority of them were already in their mid-30s. Well, then you had my generation that came through that we all started playing in our teens and, you know, grew up, you know, through our teenage years playing. And then we're on the national team through our 20s. And now you've got players like Brody, uh, Roy Bull and Declan Farmer and Josh Pauls that all started playing when they were six, seven, eight years old. Oh, and so wow. by the time by the time they're old enough to make the national team, they've already been playing nine or 10 years. And so the game is a part of who they are. They know hockey. They know the they know the sport. You know they've perfected their skills, um, and you know that's why you know the the level of competition just continues to increase because you know we're seeing this across all countries. Obviously, it's a little bit more noticeable in the U.S. and Canada right now. Uh, that's the two you know top countries in the world, but other countries are starting to starting to pick up, and we see some younger players coming onto the scene in countries like Sweden and Norway. And that sort of thing so it, it's good to see that you know other countries are starting to work on developing younger players and bring them up because that's definitely led to the success in the US and Canada
2: what does someone in who who is interested in sled hockey what do they do to get involved and like how much does this equipment cost
1: so first of all to get involved go to Google I okay. mean Google has the answers for everything right <laughs> um, And, you know, there are teams literally everywhere now, especially in um, the United States. I can speak to that just because I'm so familiar with it. But we've literally got teams from Southern California up to Seattle, all the way over to, you know, New Hampshire and Maine, down to Florida and then Texas and up the Midwest in between. So we've got teams from coast to coast, south to north. And so, you know, the chances are that if you're interested in playing, there's a program within driving distance to you. So just get out there and, you know, do a little research and find that program. And, you know, we like to tell people there's not a program, reach out and, you know, see what we can ha- do to help you start a program. USA Hockey has a number of different programs to help get organizations started. They have sled programs, sled grant programs to help get, you know, your first bunch of sleds into a, a, a rink or an area. Um, So there's resources out there to help get it going if there's not a program uh, close to you. Um, The second question was, how much does it cost? Mm -hmm. And uh, actually, sled hockey is the cheapest disabled or Paralympic sport, uh, maybe aside from swimming, that there is. Really? Because you don't need a special – or you you do need a sled, which is a special piece of equipment, but you don't need a specialized wheelchair. So tennis, basketball, wheelchair, rugby – they all require custom-made sport wheelchairs, which range from two to you know five thousand dollars plus. Hand cycles, road racing wheelchairs, mm-hmm. um, you know track chairs. These all you know cost into the thousands of dollars. The top sled hockey sled right now probably costs six hundred bucks without oh, a, wow. a buck a bucket, and you can get pre. Uh, formed buckets that just kind of fit general sizes, small, medium, large Mm -hmm. for, you know, 150 bucks. So, you know, you could get outfitted head to toe and all the equipment and a top of the line sledge for under a thousand dollars wow that's Um, not bad yeah so people are a little surprised by that because traditionally hockey is known as you know one of the more expensive sports to play exactly Um, so but in the paralympic world or in the disabled sports world it's actually one of the cheaper uh sports to be a part of that's
2: really interesting And and what do the sticks cost
1: uh, I would say the sticks. The expensive ones are around you know eighty-five to a hundred dollars a set, that's bad. and that's not in, that's not including the picks, which are I don't know twenty twenty-five bucks a okay. set.
2: Okay. Because that was another question I had. Do they they pull out and you sharpen them and put them back in, or are they good for only so long, or how how do the how does um, the maintenance of those work?
1: Yeah, it just depends. Most people don't sharpen them. If they go dull, you just buy a new set. They can't break. You know, if they get hit with the puck hard enough, they can crack uh, where they're screwed in uh, to the stick and that sort of thing. But, yeah, if they kind of go dull, I would say, you know, over a season or two, a player will just replace them. You know, they're only 25 bucks or so for four new ones, so you can replace them on both sticks for, you know, pretty cheap.
2: Oh, that's not bad.
1: See? So all people should play sled hockey. <laughs> it's
2: cheap. One of the things we tend to ask athletes is, How would you or what would you wish that the media would say or do when they covered your sport? How would you answer that? And then now that you are going to be the media, what what do you have in mind?
1: Yeah, so I actually just had a conversation with a friend earlier today about one of the things. uh, And the number one thing is don't take the Paralympian away from Paralympians, a lot of people in the media and even, you know, corporate sponsors will just call Paralympians Olympians. You know, they'll call them the same thing, but you know, Paralympians, while we are equal, we are not the same. And I think Paralympians should be proud to be Paralympians and corporate sponsors that are sponsoring them in media outlets that are covering Paralympians and Paralympic sport should know that there is a difference and use the word, you know, like it's meant to to be used and use it proudly and not like it's anything less than being an Olympian. Like you don't have to call a Paralympian an Olympian to make them feel better uh, or make it seem like a more legit athlete or a more legit sport. Paraly- Paralympics and Paralympian at the root of the word means parallel to the Olympics. So they are equal on the sport side of things. It's just society as uh, you know a whole Just views people with disabilities as being underneath able bodied people or able bodied athletes. And so, for whatever reason, they just, and a lot of times it's oversight, it's not on purpose. But, you know, I have to think that if you're a corporate sponsor, um, uh, you know, a multi billion dollar company in the United States, if you're involved in sponsoring Paralympians and Paralympic sport, you should know the difference between a Paralympian and an Olympian. And you should be proud to be sponsoring both of them and calling each as they are. So that's one of my biggest pet peeves. <laughs> but then the other one is just, uh, you know, really focusing on the sports and focusing on the athletes. Uh, in the U.S., we're seeing a shift from everyone wanting to hear the stories of overcoming obstacles and that sort of thing, the, the sob stories. And, you know, we're finally getting to the point where people want to know about the athletes, what they do day in and day out to compete at that level, you know, what their training schedule is like, what the the season is like, and that sort of thing. So just covering more of that, as opposed to just continually telling people stories about what they overcome. You know, obviously, that's important to set the table for a lot of the athletes. But at the root of the story, these people as athletes do so much more than just overcome, you know, having an amputated limb or overcome a spinal cord injury like it takes so much more than that to compete at the paralympic level so i think you know more time should be spent focusing on what they do you know day in and day out on and off the field of play to you know be the best in the world at whatever sport they're competing in
3: so how have you seen it cuz you've been doing this for a long time what big changes have you seen uh in in the paralympics and just in the whole movement in general
1: yeah, so so that's one of the biggest differences is we're starting to see, you know, corporate sponsors. Uh, I mean, A, just corporate sponsors, period. You know, when I first started in 2006, I think Visa was the only uh, corporate sponsor that was sponsoring Paralympic athletes. And now you literally have, you know, 15 or 20 plus uh, around the globe that are sponsoring Paralympic athletes um, individually. Uh, which is a huge change. Um, And it's awesome to see because, you know, there's athletes that are able to make a living doing this now and uh, support their families and, you know, continue playing uh, and competing for much longer than they ever would have been able to, you know, back before, you know, we had sponsors. So that's been really awesome to see. And then just the the level of the equipment has continued to increase. Uh, It's just getting, you know, technology is playing a huge influence on that, you know, Uh, I was talking to her earlier about, you know, the materials that the sticks are made of now and the sleds and things like that. It's just so much more advanced than it was when I first started back in 2002. And that's across all the sports, including cross-country skiing and downhill skiing. You know, the equipment just keeps getting better and better and lighter and stronger and it helps athletes, you know, go faster and compete harder. And we're seeing, you know, the results, you know, whatever the the sport is, we're seeing the results, you know, on the podium that – The top downhill skiers are skiing 60 to 70 miles an hour, you know, down the mountain, which, you know, Lindsey Vonn is skiing 80, maybe 90. So, you know, they're not that far behind, yet they're using a completely different kind of contraption. And, um, you know, it's really cool to see, again, how much parallel there is between Paralympic and Olympic sports.
2: Well, thank you, Taylor, for your insight. We really appreciated having you on the show, and we look forward to listening to you on our TVs and apps and streaming uh, sites during the Pyeongchang Winter Games.
3: I think the coolest thing that he said was when we were talking about, or when he was talking about Paralympics are not just... Olympics, that they're not the same. Yeah, that, they, that,
2: that was really interesting to me, too.
3: Because on the one hand, I would think they would want to be thought of. I mean, I guess this is me as the able-bodied. Right. Look,
2: trying to think, We're oh, we, trying, have, yes. yeah, we have to be inclusive and have that. But, but it's not the same.
3: It's not the same. And I, I think eliminating that para takes away what they have accomplished in a way. Right. It takes away some of what they've been able to achieve. Right. Which is important. I mean, yeah, it, yeah. It, I mean it, they have an additional hurdle to, to cross and it shouldn't be diminished and it shouldn't be ignored. Right. It should be recognized and celebrated. Right. So Which is important.
2: Yeah, so it was great. But it
3: sled was, hockey is exciting. Oh my
2: gosh, when I was watching some videos to when doing the research, oh, that's going to be cool to watch.
3: I think I'm going to learn so much from watching this Paralympics.
2: I know, I know. It's I know, and that excites me. Yeah, so we hope you listeners are looking forward to that ride and journey with us and, and learning a lot more. If you know something about Paralympics and want to share it with us, we would love to hear from you. Yes. You can email us at uh, info at olimfever.com. Or uh call us on our voicemail line, that's five three zero seven six three three eight three seven. That's five three zero seven oh fever. We would love to hear from you.
3: And I hope we haven't said anything offensive.
2: I do too. Because I know I know it's gonna happen. And I mm-hmm. don't know it because I have to learn.
3: Right. So please know that if we if we did, it was out of lack of knowledge.
2: Right, and that we're trying to get it. Rather right. than insensitivity.
3: Yes, we yeah. are
2: trying to get it right. Well, it's trivia time. Do you have trivia for me?
3: I do have trivia. I know. Trivia we for haven't me. had
2: trivia in, it feels like, forever.
3: I know. We got a respite. And I have Paralympic trivia. I have actually three choices of trivia questions. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to go with this. Okay. 2018,
2: mm-hmm.
3: Paralympics, how many countries are going to be represented?
2: Ooh, that's a good question. I don't even know how many countries were <laughs> represented for the Olympics. To be quite honest, if I think about it, I'm going to say 50.
3: Very close. 42.
2: Not bad. Okay. What year was the first Winter Paralympic Games held?
3: See, I know when the first Paralympic Games were held Mm -hmm. in Rome in 1960. Right. But that would have been summer. Correct. So I'm going to... It was in our lifetime. I was going to say either 72 or 76. 76. It was 76. It was. Yes. Okay. And do you
2: know where they were held? Because were the they Winter not in, Olympics. They were not
3: in Innsbruck.
2: No. They were not in
3: Innsbruck. Oh. Yeah. Because they didn't get together. Right. That would have been another it,
2: question. Yes. when uh, Because the history wise, the Paralympics is run by the international Paralympic committee, which is separate from the international Olympic committee, but they forged an agreement back in, I don't know when the agreement was forged. It must've been like mid eighties or so. And the agreement was that they aligned the two organizations' games so that they were held together. And that's really helped the Paralympic movement expand because they've gotten a whole right. lot more visibility for it. For the first Winter Games that they were aligned was Albertville in
3: 1992. Oh, okay. I really was going but... You know,
2: that long ago when you think
3: about no. it. No. So,
2: you know, it'd be interesting to see kind of the evolution of how that's happened.
3: Yeah. So, where was 76 held? Was it held in another Olympic city?
2: Well, I have country, so I don't know where the city oh. is.
3: Oh. Okay, then I'm going to say Switzerland.
2: Sweden, close. Get oh. SW, the SW. Get the SW. A little bit of news, follow-up from Pyeongchang. The IOC has reinstated Russia as a uh, National Olympic Committee. As you know, they were banned from competing at the Games, and they were uh, Russia was hopeful that it would be reinstated in time for the closing ceremony so that the athletes could walk out with their flag. But uh, that was negative because there were a few uh, doping incidents that that were uncovered during the Games. But the IOC said that they've gotten uh, the final no- notification of all remaining test results from the Olympic athletes from Russia and the delegation. Those tests were negative. So they've uh, lifted the suspension and Russian Olympic Committee is back in good graces.
3: Well, I don't know if they're back in good graces. I think you're... In I, the
2: I think the IOC is hopeful. We can just shove this, this matter under the rug and let it go.
3: Yeah. Did you see the release of the Tokyo mascots? Yes. I'm a little sad. Yeah. But on the flip side, I am going to give them a chance because the pink one, so they're very anime. So we had talked about this a, a couple of months ago now. They had three choices. I think they picked the best one out of the choices with the squares. And there's only two. So happy about that. Yes, happy about two. With the five, yep. And they they do have cute faces.
2: Yeah. I mean, I can get behind the Olympic person's smile. Yes. So we've got a, uh, just to kind of paint the picture for you, there were three choices of mascots. So three choices of pairs to pick one was a uh, very cute little animals but they had scars all over them and then there were more I would say cartoonish animals that were not really cartoon cartoons but like they
3: were scary
2: they were they were kind of like bad Pixar I would guess you know what I mean you know what I mean it's not it's not a, ending up with two anime-based characters, so they've got really big eyes, and they're creatures of some sort. The Olympic one has blue boxes and a checkerboard pattern, I guess you would say. And the pink one is a Paralympics, and that one has pink checkers all over it. So the, that goes with the Tokyo logos, in a sense, and that's kind of cool. And anime is kind of cool. I don't know, they've really... I don't know. I, I, can, I can get behind these, I suppose. It all depends on how they look when you see them in mascot form and not as a drawing, I think. Because Suharang, seeing that live and in product form, that made Suharang even better,
3: I think. That's true. That's true. So we'll have to see how these play out. I do like, because usually I don't like things that aren't an identifiable animal, but these look like anime aliens which works in some strange way and I like how the pink one sort of looks like she's wearing a cape yes and she's
2: got cute eyebrows and I know how you
3: like the eyebrows I do and they both have the little impish grins yes so I think these are actually going to be quite cute in action
2: I think they have to grow on you because the more I'm looking at them the more they are growing on me yes so that gives me hope because when I first saw all three of the choices, I was just like, oh, these are not Suhara and Bandabi.
3: Yeah, we're a little colored right now because of our absolute devotion to Suhara,
1: <laughs>
3: which is bordering on a little creepy, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but I can see kids getting behind these.
2: Yeah, I think so. You know, in a, in a very anime type way.
3: Right. Which I think is great because I think it tells you something about Tokyo. Yes. Which I love, which is one of the reasons I loved so much about what Pyeongchang did. Because I feel like I know something about Korean culture, which I didn't before. Right.
2: With the the symbolism of the white tiger.
3: Yes. And just a lot of things that they did. I felt like I was learning about the country, which is the best part of what a host country can do.
2: Right. All right. Well, we're going to give the Tokyo mascots a chance, right? We're still yes. living on a little Suharang and we're going to get a lot of Bindabi in a couple of weeks. I'm so excited because I love him. And I know. We'll, we'll hold out hope that the Tokyo mascots turn out to be way cuter as we go along and that we love them just as equally.
3: I'm excited. I don't know if we want to live them just as, love them just as equally. Because we're, we're creepy with Suharang. <laughs>
2: Well, I, I, would like to, I would like to really like the mascots. Like, like, I, like them, like them.
3: You yes, know what I mean? I want to wear them. Yes, yes,
2: definitely. Maybe have a little pin. But we've got a lot to look forward to for Tokyo, and we've got a lot to look forward to in the next couple of weeks. That'll do it for this week's episode. We'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay in touch. Email us at olymfever at gmail.com. That's
0: O-L-Y-M fever at Gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70 fever. We're on Twitter at fever, And you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive.
2: An anime is kind of cool.